0: The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 19, The Imperial Moment, Part 4.
1: Welcome to the American History Podcast, hosted by Sean Worswick.
0: Hello and welcome back. Before we get started, let me just invite you all to check us out on social media. As you probably know by now, I finally broke down, and not only do we have a Facebook page, but we have an Instagram account. Now, as of this recording, I was planning a trip to Trinity Site, the location of the first atomic bomb being exploded in the desert New Mexico. And actually, I did go, but sadly, it was closed due to COVID-19. But I did get a photo or two, and those are on the Instagram account, so check it out. We're also on Twitter, at American Hiscast and the aforementioned Facebook. So there's a ton of ways for you to interact with me if you are so inclined to do so. Now, if you want to just send me some hate mail, the email is sean at com, and make sure you spell Sean, S-H-A-W-N. And we have some new Patreon members. I'd like to thank Keith, I hope I'm getting this right, Keimbach, uh, Gregory, and Joe for joining the Patreon. I hope you enjoy listening to the series, 1983 as well as getting the episodes early and commercial-free. Speaking of 1983, I'm working on the next episode, so hopefully by the time you're listening to this, it will be out as well. Now, if you all would like to support the show and help to keep history alive, so to speak, head on over to the website. You can click on the Patreon link on the right side of the page, and boom, you're ready to sign up. Simple. Another way is to go to the website and click on one of the hyperlinked sources. That will take you to Amazon, Amazon. And if you don't purchase the actual book that I linked, we still get a few pennies from them, and you get your product. So that way of support costs you absolutely nothing. All right, so this week, the song of the week is School Days, when we were a couple of kids, performed by Byron G. Harlan. Now, believe it or not, I distinctly remember singing this song in elementary school when we had our music class. Anyways, um, that might have given away how old I am, uh, but enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side.
1: The ship back to the bygone day. Christmas take brought the tune of a Hickory stick. You are my queen in Calico. I was your thing for their water. And you're all called my
0: slate. We all right, so let's start this episode with dollar diplomacy. Now this term comes from a message President Taft sent to Congress in December 1912. Essentially, the idea was that American foreign policy protected Wall Street dollars invested abroad. Taft encouraged Wall Street to invest overseas under the belief that this investment um, acted as a buttress for U.S. foreign policy. Now, in the end, the policy had two goals, or was based on two beliefs. First, Taft wanted to reduce rival powers, i.e. Germany, from taking advantage of financial chaos in the Caribbean. Second, bankers would strengthen American defenses and foreign policies, while at the same time bringing prosperity to the United States by investing overseas. Thus, dollar diplomacy was um, a kind of idea designed to replace the big stick of the previous decade. Now that we understand the basics of the policy, let's take a look at how it played out in the Caribbean. The U.S. government urged Wall Street bankers to pump money into Honduras and Haiti to keep out foreign European loans. In 1909... The U.S. loaned money to pro-U.S. insurgents and sent troops to seize customs houses. Now, the insurgents won their revolution. However, one wonders just how popular this new government was. This is because just two years later, there was an insurrection, and the United States sent in troops to restore order. Ultimately, um, the U.S. also sent forces to Cuba, Honduras, and even the Dominican Republic. So this was essentially a continuation of Roosevelt's corollary to the Monroe Doctrine. And actually, I'm going to put a side note in here. This tends to be kind of the way American foreign policy works. As you're going to see, especially if you are listening to 1983, um, there's an interesting point about foreign policy and the Middle East and Carter. And well, anyways, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but this this is typical. Just believe me on that. And before I go on, I want you to think about this. T.R. and Taft were said to have fallen out. T.R. was so angry that he essentially ran against Taft and threw the election, one could argue, to the Democrats by splitting the GOP. But how deep was this rift when we look at foreign policy? Taft was enforcing Roosevelt's corollary. He added teeth to it. This is, I think you will find, fairly typical of American history for the 20th century and now the 21st century. Again, and this is what I was alluding to, I'll give you one example, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. As historian Andrew Basevich notes in his book America's War for the Greater Middle East, it was the Carter administration that paved the way and set the foundation for the American empire to move in and police, if you wish, to call it that, the Middle East, first under Reagan and then under Bush, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, and now Trump. And if you've never read that book, then you really should. That leads us back to Asia and China specifically. President Taft saw the uh, the Manchurian railway monopoly by Russia and Japan as a threat to the open door. Thus, in 1909, Taft proposed that a group of U.S. and foreign bankers buy the railroads and turn them over to China. China could pay the United States back from railroad revenues. The deal was negotiated by J.P. Morgan. Japan and Russia, however, refused to give up these important railroads. Taft was even ridiculed for this ill-conceived plan. The scheme failed and demonstrated what some argued were the limits of the open door. Speaking of criticisms, Latin America and American anti-imperialists criticized quote-unquote dollar diplomacy for underlying continued U.S. aggression in Central America and the Caribbean. Now let's take a look at President Wilson and his part in all of this. He hated imperialism and initially at least recoiled from the idea of an aggressive foreign policy. He opposed both the big stick and dollar diplomacy. Yet, Wilson eventually intervened in Latin America more than any other president in U.S. history. This is much the same as what we saw with Obama, or Reagan and Bush implementing the Carter plan for the United States to dominate the Middle East. Anyway, the standard narrative is that Wilson was pressured into all of this by U.S. companies who had invested money abroad and wanted those investments protected. However, I have to question that. One of the standard narratives of this sort of intervention holds... That the United States, thanks to the efforts of the United Fruit Company, successfully lobbied the Eisenhower administration to intervene and remove the duly elected president of Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz, from power when he started using phrases such as land reform. Now, this line is often repeated, even by historians, thanks to a book published way back in 1982 by Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer, and I love Stephen Kinzer, by the way, titled Bitter Fruit, the Untold Story of the American Coup in Guatemala. They are basically arguing from the William Appleman Williams School of Historiography, and they are postulating that the American empire is motivated by economics. And I don't disagree with that. However, a book published in the late 1990s complicates this story, and it's worth mentioning. And that's um, Nick Cullinther's work, and it's titled Secret History, The CIA's Classified Account of Its Operations in Guatemala, 1952-1954. through Now, this book is just what the title says it is a classified history commissioned by the CIA in the early 1990s. Now, if you don't know it, the CIA hires historians to do this sort of thing. They're hired on a short contract, maybe a year or two, to go in and, using their archives, write a history of an operation. Under Bill Clinton, there was a brief moment where they started to declassify documents dealing with Guatemala, and this is one of them. In it, the author shows that the reality was quite different than what those on the outside believed. The Eisenhower administration was not being dictated to by the United Fruit Company. As a matter of fact, according to Cullather's work, it was the Cold War itself that was the factor that pushed the United States to move against Guatemala. The last thing the U.S. government wanted was the Soviets to have an ally in the Western Hemisphere. The fact that Arben started sounding like a communist, talking about land reform, concerned the United Fruit Company, and yes, caused them concern about their holdings. The U.S. government, on the other hand, couldn't care less about the company's holdings, and in fact, it was worried that it would look like they were dancing to the beat of the company. However, what they would not tolerate in any way was the aforementioned idea of a Soviet ally on the American landmass. So I apologize for that brief dive into the weeds, but let's get back to Wilson. Wilson initially pursued an anti-imperialist and anti-nativist foreign policy. First, he proclaimed the United States would no longer offer special support to American investors in Latin America or in China. Furthermore, he repealed the Panama Canal Tolls Act, which exempted U.S. shipping from tolls. Third, you had the Jones Act of 1916. This act granted the Philippines territorial status and promised independence when a stable government was established 30 years later on 4th of July 1946, which is when the Philippines received their independence. Now, the fourth was the Jones Act of 1917, which gave Puerto Ricans U.S. citizenship. Finally, you had the crisis with Japan. The California legislature in 1913 prohibited Japanese Americans from owning land in an act known as the California Alien Land Law. The Japanese protested. The U.S. feared that Japan might end up attacking the Philippines. The U.S. Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, went to California and convinced its government to ease its restrictions. The result was that, at least temporarily, tensions between Japan and the United States eased. Hey guys, just a quick message before we get started. As you know, Fable Beard Company is the official beard company of the American History Podcast. And as this episode airs, it is the holiday season. So if you're looking for some amazing beard oil for that special someone in your life, or any sort of beard product for that matter, head over to the Fable Beard Company and check out their entire line of beard balm, butter, and oil. Maybe you need something for the lady in your life. They have you covered there as well. Fable Beard Company has an amazing line of hair oils and body butters that your girlfriend, your wife, or female friend will totally love and enjoy using. When it comes to beard products, I myself am particularly fond of the beard oils that are infused with CBD. Specifically, I love the roaster, but I'm also fond of the grower as well. Whatever scent is the one you pick, I assure you it'll be the best beard purchase you've ever made. And these products are the perfect gift for that beard man in your life. So head over to Fable Beard Company at www.fablebeardco.com for the regular products and fablebeardcompany.com for their line of CBD infused items. Use coupon code SEAN15 to get 15% off the total order. And by the way, you can use that code again and again. It isn't simply for the first order. All right, now on with the show. Now, sadly, the anti-imperialism was short-lived. After World War I broke out in Europe, Wilson was determined to fortify the Western Hemisphere. Several countries, in effect, became protectorates of the United States, although not officially. Wilson kept Marines in Nicaragua to maintain order after they landed in 1912. So much for non-intervention. As if that wasn't enough, he sent forces to Haiti in 1914 to 1915 when its president was killed. The purpose of this intervention was to protect American lives and property, and the administration had been lobbied to intervene By a large New York bank. Now there were two more instances of American intervention in the Caribbean that fall under the auspices of imperialism. First you had 1916 when U.S. Marines were sent to the Dominican Republic after a civil war broke out and the country remained debt ridden. The Marines remained in country until 1934. Then in 1917 the United States purchased the Virgin Islands from Denmark. The Caribbean Sea was now dominated by the United States. Again, you can imagine that most people in Latin America were not pleased and looked warily at the colossus of the, of the North. This brings us to Wilson's moral diplomacy in Mexico. The Mexican Revolution began in 1910. Porfirio Diaz, the dictator of the country since 1876, was now opposed by the Mexican Indian masses and the frustrated middle class. Just as a side note, by 1910, Americans owned th- 43% of property in Mexico surely a sore point in a nation with a large amount of poor who couldn't afford to own land. Other foreigners owned nearly 25% of the land and approximately 50,000 Americans lived in Mexico. All of this led to resentment and helped to fuel the revolutionary fires in Mexico. Francisco Madero, a moderate revolutionary interested in reforms, replaced Diaz in 1911. Now that we are talking about revolution, even if just briefly, I think it will be helpful to mention a historian of revolution named Crane Britain. He was a 20th century historian who came up with what is termed the revolutionary cycle in a book he published in 1938 titled anatomy of a revolution. He postulates the idea of a cycle to revolution. Now his models were the English revolution of the 17th century and the American and French revolutions of the 18th century and the Russian revolution of the 20th century. And he argues that revolutions follow a cycle going from first the old order to a moderate regime, and then finally to a radical phase. He compares it to a fever, noting that moderate regimes cannot or will not do the things needed to fix the problems in society. Thus, the fever worsens and the radical phase is introduced. Eventually, it is in this phase that the revolution begins to eat its own, so to speak, and the radicals begin to take out their former allies. From this point, there is a period of relaxation as the fever essentially burns itself out. You should realize his specialty was the French Revolution, so this model works best when thinking about or analyzing that revolution. (laughs) Now, as for Mexico, I think, generally speaking, the model holds. As I mentioned, Diaz was replaced by a moderate, one who was interested in reforms, but in the end couldn't get it done, although perhaps for different reasons than Britain argued in his cycle. First, foreign diplomats, including those from the United States, along with businessmen, plotted with elements of the Mexican army, To replace Madero with General Huerta. However, Madero was preferred by President Wilson. In the end, poor Mexicans revolted in 1913 and it ended up overthrowing Madero. General Huerta, a full-blooded Indian, became president. This was pretty impressive when you consider the fact that the Spanish viewed Indians in pretty much the same light as Americans, questioning whether or not they were even human. Violence against Indians is present throughout Mexican history, so the fact that a full-blooded Indian could rise to the rank of general and then become president mm, that's pretty impressive but in any event the revolution led to massive uh, to a massive level of immigration to the united states from mexico and american interests in mexico cried out for the colossus of the north to intervene wilson eventually massed troops on the border and sent warships to mexico warning huerta that unless he abdicated the united states would overthrow him wilson saw huerta as a brute and said quote I'm going to teach the South American republics to elect good men, end quote. So much for not interfering in the domestic politics of other countries, huh? If this isn't imperialism, then I don't know what it is. Anyway, this is a concrete example of President Wilson's moral diplomacy. Finally, in 1914, Wilson allowed American weapons to flow, and I'm going to mess up this name, uh, Venustiano Carranza and to Francisco Pancho Villa, Huerta's rivals. Next, in 1914, Wilson ordered the U.S. Navy to seize Veracruz. He did this before Congress had a chance to act. Remember, in those days, Congress wasn't in session nearly as often as it is today. Anyway, Congress and much of the American public were outraged. Both Huerta and Carranza condemned the American actions. The Mexicans suffered 123 casualties, while the Americans suffered 19, and the United States occupied the city for seven months. At this point, a full-scale war seemed inevitable, and the so-called ABC powers, Argentina, Chile, and Brazil, offered to mediate. But the reality was that rather than fight a war against the United States, Mexico devolved into chaos. The Huerta regime collapsed in July of 1914, and he was succeeded by Carranza, who was still resentful over the United States' action in Veracruz. In the meantime, Pancho Villa emerged as Carranza's chief rival. At this point, not truly wanting to get in deeper, The United States reluctantly supported Carranza with both diplomatic recognition and arms. Villa retaliated by killing 18 Americans at Santa Isabel in Mexico in January 1916, and then his army crossed the border and shot up Columbus, New Mexico, killing 17 Americans. But this wasn't the only time raiders crossed into the United States and attacked American towns. These sorts of raids took place over 30 times and resulted in the destruction of property and the loss of lives. So as a result, General John J. Pershing, stationed at Fort Bliss, Texas, was ordered by Wilson to invade northern Mexico and subdue Pancho Villa. American forces penetrated 300 miles into the Mexican state of Chihuahua, where they clashed with Carranza's forces and destroyed Villa's army. Note, the United States did not have Mexican permission to enter their territory. This was a violation of Mexican sovereignty. Villa himself was never captured, but he was assassinated in 1923. Consequently the United States withdrew from Mexico. Wilson's intervention in Mexico was seen as so egregious that both sides in Mexico's civil war wanted the United States out. On the northern side of the border, U.S. public opinion as well as foreign pressure influenced Wilson to withdraw U.S. troops. But in the end, I believe that what really influenced Wilson was the fact that the United States was intent on intervening in the conflict raging in Europe. In February 1917, war was looming, and thus... Wilson withdrew American forces from Mexico. In the next few episodes, planned on being two episodes at the time of this writing, we will discuss American involvement in World War I. For now, suffice it to say that Wilsonian foreign policy was so unpopular, it was flatly repudiated in the 1920s by both parties, at least for a moment. However, and I think it's a shame that this is so, the fact of the matter is that Wilsonianism has become the way the United States conducts foreign policy since the end of World War II. Wilson is often cited as a favorite president by modern U.S. presidents. It's either usually Wilson or Theodore Roosevelt that they mention. You can see this sort of policy in action in the way the United States is currently acting in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and even Libya under the Obama administration. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this look at American imperialism. Like I said, next time, it's time to discuss World War I. Until then, good day. you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.